On today's episode, we will welcome Steve Riley, Field CTO for Netscope. Steve is a trusted information technology professional with 30 plus years of experience in multiple specialities, including cloud security, architecture, design, and compliance, among others. He is passionate about discovering ways for information security to enable and enhance business and converting doubters into supporters. Please welcome Steve Riley on today's episode of TNT. We also want to welcome our guest host, Matt Stamper, Chief Information Security Officer and Executive Advisor for Evotech. Matt has extensive experience and understanding of cybersecurity practices and a diverse domain knowledge spanning IT services management. He's also the co-author of the CISO Desk Reference Guide, Volumes 1 and 2. Matt, thank you for joining us on today's episode of TNT. Steve, I dig your picture. Wait, was that a French horn or a trumpet? That's a French horn, right? Neither. It's a mellophone. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So a mellophone is, you could think of it as a stretched out trumpet. Uh-huh. It's the same length as a French horn, so it's in the key of F. Um, so French horn players will use a mellophone when you play outdoors because you want the bell facing front, right? Uh-huh. Um, but the fingerings are like trumpet because of the physics of the instrument. So it, it's actually fun. Of all of the brass things I play, it's my favorite because I can make so much noise with it. <laughs> Love it. Love it. <laughs> Matt, do you play an instrument? I wish I did. If I did, I would love to play the trumpet. I, I, to me, there's something about the trumpet that just sings to me. It is an amazing instrument. I, I love it. I have no musical talents yeah, whatsoever. <laughs> well, you, you, should, you should give French horn a try because only ridiculous people play that thing. It's a, <laughs> it's a, it's a crazy, it's a crazy instrument. Um, but here's the thing about, about French horns, right? Um, they are the things that it, whenever movie composers write music for something, if they need to create a romantic bond between people or launch spaceships from, or starships from space dock, it's uh-huh. always a French horn. You get the best, best stuff. In the, I love that. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a music composition um, college here in Seattle. I forget what it's called, but people go to this, this university to learn how to become composers for films. That uh, is cool. And uh, I've done a couple of recording sessions with them when some student had a film, you know, 30 minute movie that they wrote the score for, and they just need a community orchestra to come together. You don't get paid for it, um, but you just sit in the recording studio all day Saturday and basically sight read the music and then, read it again when they record it and move on to the next one. So that's actually kind of fun. That's a blast. Well, welcome to the technology and music podcast. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome, Steve. Um, It's fun to hear about what people are doing uh, other than their kind of work life and stuff. So obviously you've got a passion for music. So that's pretty cool. It's where I, before pandemic, spent most of my free time was uh, playing in different groups, um, Seattle Wind Symphony, Puget Brass, which is a British style brass band, other groups, if they just needed someone to play, I would 
know, my name was on people's lists and they give me a call. All that stuff just stopped during pandemic though. Yeah. Hopefully that starts up again up. soon. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, Steve, when you and I were at the Gartner Security Summit in London at the airport waiting to come back, we ran into each other there. And yes. I think you were showing me a video of one of the concerts you were doing. And that was just awesome. Which was that, um, which, which band was that with? I don't remember. I, now. Know, I don't know. I, I, uh, I, I am woefully ignorant on which, <laughs> band, but it was something where it was, you were playing there. You were with a large group of other individuals playing stuff, but I, I remember seeing that and that was uh, very cool. Oh, thank you. And that might've been the, the West Symphony. I didn't Symphony. remember the name of the band. That's okay. <laughs> Matt, we asked you to come prepared today and this is what you're giving us. Exactly. <laughs> So, Steve, uh, you know, if we could take a quick tangent and talk a little bit about your uh, your business and technical career, um, sure. that would be wonderful. So, uh, you've had a you've had quite a career. Uh, I mean, you've worked at some of the, you know, I, I'd say you know some of the most uh, trusted and uh, you know respected companies, um, you know, over over your career from you know, Microsoft and Gartner and Riverbed and Amazon and, and, and others. So um, maybe you could just, you know, give us a, uh, you know, a quick history lesson on, on what your career has been. And, and sure. Uh, I would say that my interest in security probably goes all the way back to 1995. I was working for the power company in Columbus, Ohio, then, and they decided they were going to, hook up to the internet. And I said, I'll figure out how to make that work, uh, you know, in really early days. Um, and of course, in the course of investigating that, I learned about these things called firewalls. I said, I need a budget for a firewall. Mm, what for? <laughs> well, if we hook up to the internet and um, we don't have uh, something to protect ourselves from the internet, which was never designed to be secure, remember that, uh, if someone attacks the mainframe and then we can't send bills to all of our rate payers, then we don't have any money to buy coal next month. <laughs> so they won't get any electrons the month after that. Uh, can I have my firewall? Here, take two. <laughs> uh, so that, that, that was kind of fun. And just getting immersed into something that I really didn't know anything about uh, and, and having the security lens on there. Uh, um, I, I stayed there um, for about three years. They went into a merger process with another utility company uh, and all the projects sort of cease when those things happen. And as a someone in my mid twenties, I didn't want to just sit around and read magazines and collect a paycheck as, as fascinating as that might sound. <laughs> I actually wanted to do some stuff. Um, so I, I jumped to uh, nationwide insurance, um, but then Shortly after that, only six months later, Microsoft is pounding on my door saying that they're looking to build out their um, uh, telecom consulting practice in Microsoft Consulting Services. Would you be interested? Sure. So they flew me to Denver, um, long day of interviews, and at the end of the day, they're like, you don't know anything about Microsoft. Why should we hire you? And, well, I sort of know the telecom space and I know a lot about competitors. So is that enough? And they're like, okay, would you like to live in Denver or Newark? <laughs> this is a trick question, right? This is part of the interview process. 
uh, Denver, please. <laughs> like, we can't get anybody in Newark. Like, okay. Uh, so that was, I think, when a lot of the really interesting started, right? Um, being in a consulting group, you get to see what customers are doing and what's working well and what's not working so well. Uh, um, one of the projects that I uh, really remember was my first security consulting project was with Quest, the phone company at the time. They were building out a hosted exchange service and they wanted to make it accessible over the internet. And so I said, well, let's put this thing in front of it called the Microsoft Internet Security and Acceleration Server, Microsoft's firewall proxy thing they had at the time. And it worked. It, it really worked. Uh, reverse proxying, Exchange Online, or whatever it was called then. Uh, uh, so I thought, okay, I'm going to create a, a tech-ed presentation about this. And I submitted it to whoever... Um, was responsible for that stuff and they accepted it. So my first time to be on stage in front of an audience of a few thousand people was explaining how to publish an exchange web service through a proxy server. And that's where I really fell in love with this notion of um, being in front of crowds. You know, as a person who's played in bands for a long time, I'm already kind of familiar with that and I like that. So being able to do the same thing on the technology side, get in front of a bunch of people, teach them something new, but entertain them a little bit at the same time while I've been doing that, uh, that really worked well for me. So I transitioned into a different role at Microsoft into the Trustworthy Computing Group, where I spent about eight years flying around the world and trying to convince folks that the combination of the words Windows security was not an oxymoron. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, I think I was reasonably successful at that. I wrote a book with a buddy of mine, Jesper Johansson, uh, where we talked about it was essentially uh, the speaker notes for all of the presentations that we had given over the years. Uh, um, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, but then um, during the economic downturn, 2008 or so, uh, you know, Microsoft went through a round of layoffs and a lot of folks in TWC got hit the second layoff round, including me. Um, but I had already been um, thinking that it was I was ready for a career change. So I was already speaking with the folks at Amazon. Uh, so therefore, it really, you know, I just kind of naturally moved from Microsoft into Amazon. And I wanted to do the same thing there, but in the context of cloud security. Let me go around the world and um, bring the ideas of cloud and security together in a way where they sound compatible and not incompatible. Um, and I, I got off to a good start with that, but uh, I, I didn't find that uh, the the culture fit with me and Amazon just wasn't quite where where it was. Um, not saying that's anything wrong with either Amazon or with me; it just wasn't wasn't a match. And when Riverbed came knocking, saying we need someone in our CTO office who's got a security background and a cloud background. We think you'd be a good fit. That did feel like a really good fit. Uh, so I, I made the jump there and spent uh, about five years at Riverbed, met a lot of really fantastic people. Um, and that's when I, I started thinking, okay, there are interesting things that you can do at vendors that aren't 
the normal things you'd, you'd see, right? It's not normal evangelism. It's not normal sales. It's not normal marketing. It's not uh, normal engineering. It's it's this odd role in a CTO office that kind of intersects with all of those. So there are slices where I get to interact with all of these different roles. You know, you don't have any authority in, in a CTO office, but if you're good and you're passionate, you can have a lot of influence over a lot of other people. And, and I, I think that was the same way it was for me all those years on stage with Microsoft. You know, I didn't have any authority over uh, any of the people who came in, but I could have a lot of influence over people. And, and that's what kind of gets me going is if I have an interesting idea and I share it with somebody else, they react positively to it. They go back and they try it. And then they call me up or they send me an email and they said, I did what you suggested and it worked. I feel good. I mean, it feels good personally, right? But it feels good also that you helped somebody else be successful. Uh, um, so after Riverbed, I had an opportunity to join Gartner as a cloud security analyst. Um, apparently, that was a fairly fast hiring process. I guess it normally takes two or three months, but you know, I went through the whole thing in, in under a month. Now, an interesting thing about the way Gartner did their uh, hiring process at that time was um, they would give you an advance, like you're, you're going to have to be smart on all three of these topics because when you come to the interview location, you're going to have to produce a research note out of your brain with, on a computer with no internet connection on one of them. And one of them was Office 365 security. I don't remember what the other two were. And, and that was the one they actually had me do. So I've got this 10-year-old laptop in a room with no internet connection. And I basically have to just write down everything I know in an order that makes sense. And then... I go away, somebody looks at that, and then I get on a WebEx and I have to defend my position in front of a bunch of people. So that, that, was, that, was, uh, that was new for me uh, because I've never actually had to defend anything that I've said before. Uh, um, but, um, you know, in the end, I guess everything worked well because they, they extended me an offer. Now, one thing that I learned in the Gardner interview process that I've always shared with folks after that, regardless of who they're interviewing for, is um, it's okay to say you don't know during any phone interview. But what you should also do is say, I'm going to look into that and I'd like to actually answer your question with the next person in the interview loop. Because the question that I got asked early in the interview loop was, how would I assess the financial performance of a company? I'm not a finance guy. I really didn't have any answer for how to do something like that that I could just instantly give to the interviewer. But I said, let me do a little bit of research on, on how that kind of thing happens. And the next person I talk to in a couple of days, I'm going to answer the question then. If you think, if that works for you. And they said, oh, yeah, that, that's great. And so I, I did that, right? And uh, during the hiring process, they actually remembered that I said I was going to follow up and talk to the next person. I, I, have, I think that's a really useful strategy. No one ever taught that to me. Um, but I do... I, find myself a lot of positions where people are asking me for tips on interviewing and things like that. So that's a new one I learned that I thought I'd maybe I, share I, with everybody here. I love that, Steve. I, I've done a lot of interviews um, over the years and I've never had anyone say, I'll 
let me look into it and actually follow. Cause I think that obviously shows that there, if you have, you're going to go follow up, you're going to go com- do something you said you were going to do all those things. There's so many things tied to that, you know, in addition to actually learning about the thing they asked you about, there's like a ton of other sort of uh, little barometers there around the kind of individual you might be hiring, you know, if they actually follow through. Mm-hmm. So love yeah. it. Um, so then uh, the, the Gartner experience was unlike anything I've ever had before in my career in some dimensions. Now in, in other dimensions, you know, it's, it's always helping other people be successful. Um, but then this idea of sitting at the intersection of technology providers and technology buyers uh, gives you a lot of visibility and insight into both how the sausage is made <laughs> and how the sausage is eaten. Um, and it, you know, it's never pretty on either side, uh, but nevertheless, a lot of interesting results can come out of that. And there were a few things specifically about cloud security that I learned at Gartner that still stick with me now. Um, one of them has to do with this whole idea of governing the cloud. And I know that a lot of the listeners are going to go, at the mention of the word cloud governance. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it other than this. Every cloud using org, in other words, basically every modern org, is under increasing pressure from their regulators and their auditors and even their customers to demonstrate that they've got the cloud under control. It's not this crazy wild west thing where anybody can subscribe to any SaaS application and store any amount of sensitive data, right? One of the things I liked about the product category that I researched, the cloud access security brokers, was that they provide all the evidence that an org needs to show to whoever needs to see it, that the org is governing the cloud. So that was one thing that kind of stuck in my mind. Another thing was this whole idea around zero trust networking, maybe not directly related to cloud, but you know, I started seeing this phrase zero trust, zero trust, zero trust pop up all over the place. And like, what does this really mean? Uh, I know that there was some stuff that Forrester had produced on it, um, but for me, the most interesting resource was um, an O'Reilly book by Barth and Gilman called Zero Trust Networks, where they clearly articulate that Networks have a lot of implicit trust. And this is what attackers exploit. You get an IP address on a network, you can go anywhere that address will take you. And maybe you shouldn't be going everywhere, but you can. And you know, lateral movement is a huge problem. So this idea of eliminating implicit or latent trust and forcing explicit decisions that are made whenever two entities want to interact sounded to me like the most ideal way of achieving a principle in information security that's been around for a long time, the principle of least privilege or least access. Only what you need, when you need it, for as long as you need it, and no more. And and when I think about zero trust, that's what I think about it in. Um, I want to eliminate latent trust. I want to uh, uh, build this. I want to move beyond zero because zero is a starting point. You know, ultimately, you do need to make some decision about how much trust you're going to extend for this interaction. So it's really about continuous adaptive trust, not just zero trust. 
Um, and, and that was another uh, conversation that I sort of refined and figured out how to carry it to a, a better place in, in all the many interactions I had with um, end user clients at Gardner and, and with many vendors too. You know, you bring up the uh, interview process and I'm having flashbacks because I, I went through the exact same thing. Six or seven interviews flew up to uh, San Jose, put you in a room, like you say, an old, yep. uh, an old uh, IBM or Lenovo uh, laptop, no internet access and 90 minutes to write a research note, scarf down a quick lunch, you come back and then you've got people trying to rip the note to shreds. And uh, I remember Lawrence Pingree was in there, uh, was the one analyst. The rest were all remote guys like Jeffrey Wheatman and, yep. and Christian Burns and, and others that uh, he subsequently has retired. And it was on the role of the CISO. And I had just finished writing the CISO desk reference guide. And, and I remember Jeffrey Wheatman and I were going back and forth a little bit. And I go, well, I respectfully disagree. <laughs> and I came out and I think, OK, well, that was a fun process. You know, I'll come back to San Diego and see what happens. And then got the offer shortly thereafter. So I loved it. The, the distillation, when you mentioned, Steve, that day in the life of Gartner where you're speaking with a large number of individuals on a particular set of topics, in this case, cloud security or subsets thereof, it's an opportunity to really get a breadth of knowledge in short order, just because of the, the cumulative effect of all of those great discussions with people that are, in many cases, truly thought leaders in and of their own right, you know, within mm -hmm. their own organizations or within uh, the broader vendor community. It's, it's, it was definitely an experience of a lifetime from my view. Yeah. Um People love to say that their favorite working environments are collaborative. I would almost go as far as to say that Gartner is uh, collegial. Mm -hmm. Yes, you know, there are egos, but there are egos everywhere you go. What, what I found was that um, once you were able to establish some trust, which is probably true, again, anywhere, mm -hmm. but, you know, if you're brand new, you got to do some things to demonstrate that people can trust you, um, then people become a lot more willing to not only listen to your feedback, but actually change what they're doing as a result of that. Um, my, well, I had a lot of things I really enjoyed about Gartner. It, end user and crew was one of my favorites. In fact, um, partly during the pandemic, I took my time from uh, five hours to six hours because there were so many people who needed to talk to us we really didn't need to be spending a lot of time writing more research. What we needed to do was be available for clients. So I was taking six hours of inquiry a day. But another aspect that I really enjoyed was the peer review process. Mm -hmm. um, the ability to uh, take a look at somebody else's research, and you may not even be, you may not know anything about their domain they're, uh, that they're writing to, but you can look at how they've presented their materials. Is it logically consistent? Are the, are, do the arguments make sense? Do the conclusions uh, match the introduction? Uh, is it written to the right audience? All these sorts of things. And, and being able to have a conversation with folks about here are the things that work really well in your note. Here are the things I think you can make work better. And, and let me give you some suggestions on how you can do that. Uh, and the fact that people are willing to take that feedback and, and get better. Um, you know, I did it a lot with my research. People would give me suggestions on how to reorganize things or how to get better. And I just found that environment 
to be really rewarding. Um, and I say collegial because it, re it reminds me a little bit of the short experience I had of being a lecturer at the University of Washington and interacting with some faculty there. Um, it, it's just, it's kind of a different thing than a standard uh, corporate interaction is. Exactly. And, and Paul, just as an FYI, when, when you're writing notes or research at Gartner, at a minimum, you have three or four peer reviews. Typically, it's ideally around five. Then you have a manager review. Then you have technical writer review. And then it goes through one subsequent review. So what you thought was your original note <laughs> will often look completely different, but it's orders of magnitude improved from that process. It, it, uh, it really forces you to think about how clearly you're writing and as, as Steve noted, to a particular audience, security and risk management leaders. <laughs> it sounds like you need to be open to uh, constructive feedback <laughs> in that yeah. process. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Lots of it. <laughs> Lots of it, yeah. Um, so, so, Steve, when you, uh, by the way, I, I love um, go, you going through kind of your history and everything was, was really, really cool. Um, right. What, so how did, so You've obviously made a move to Netscope uh, recently. I'm kind of curious, what it, what it, what is it about? You talked a little bit, obviously, about the space and kind of what you thought was interesting about it. But what are you finding, you know, with this new role? Um, you know, wh what was interesting about it to you? Um, and uh, and I guess you know, how, how is it going? I know it's only been a you know maybe three or four months, but yeah, yeah. Well. Um so when I, when I first started at Gartner, I was taking a lot of inquiry on Office 365 security, AWS Azure security, not so much um, with GCP or at the time, you know, it was G Suite. Um, it, it, they just weren't things that Gartner clients seemed to be having security questions about. Um, and then it came time to do the CASB magic quadrant. Gartner had been uh, writing market guides for about three years before then, and it looked like the market was going to be sufficiently robust that a magic quadrant makes sense. You, you have to defend the decision to make a magic quadrant because they're hugely resource intensive. It takes 20 to 24 weeks, uh, and there's a lot of people who are involved in that, and you're, you're putting a lot of demands on vendors too. So you only want to do a magic quadrant if you think that the end user community is going to benefit from it. And we felt it was the time. So uh, I was made lead author as the new guy. <laughs> and they paired me up with a, a, a really smart analyst who'd been there for a while and, and knew, the, knew the internal workings and, the, and, and, and many of the vendors, uh, Craig Lawson. So it was a pleasure to work with him on that piece of research. In doing that research, I got introduced to the set of vendors in this space. And there, there were things about uh, Netscope, the way that they built the organization and the way they were building the product and where they wanted to take the product just you know, beyond pure CASB that, that impressed me. And um, not that that influenced any of the conclusions in my research, just me personally. Yeah. And, and many of those things just kind of stuck with me during, during the time that I was there. And I could see that the company was uh, thinking seriously about how to uh, expand into adjacent markets, 
um, how to capture market share in those adjacent markets from orgs who weren't current customers and not just, you know, think you're going to sell to the same sets of people you always sell to. Uh, um, but then another thing was happening is that many of the folks I knew and respected from Riverbed were landing at Netscope. Uh, uh, and I was chatting with um, Mark Day, who I worked for at Riverbed, who had now the same title at Netscope Chief, um, um, Chief, Chief Scientist. And we're like, well, what would you like to do if you came here? And so I put together this list. He basically, I don't know whether he was asking me to write a job description, but I ended up writing a job description for what at the time I didn't know kind of already existed, this idea of a field CTO. And, um, and I put five categories of, of things in here, uh, customer success, customer advocacy, um, you know, brand awareness, sales enablement, and product influence. Again, none of those are like, you don't have authority for any of them. It's all about being able to work with the people who do own those roles and see how you can insert yourself into whatever they're doing to help them get better. Uh, um, and apparently this one pager that I put together uh, was enough of a, what I want to say, um, bit of a sales effort from myself and they're <laughs> like, okay, that sounds good. We'll, we'll bring you in to do all that. Um, and, and so to some respect, because of many of the people and, and the more formalized structure this time, it felt a lot like what I had at Riverbed, which I really enjoyed, but I'm also seeing that um, there are, there are distinctiveness here. Uh, you know, cloud security is still at the early stages um, unlike WAN optimization, when I joined Riverbed, you know, it was kind of reaching its end a little bit. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of space for a lot of innovation still, uh, even if you're not AWS or Microsoft or Google. Um, one of the things that I learned that kind of surprised me from my end user client inquiry at Gartner when orgs make the decision to leap to the cloud, they also often make the decision to leave their legacy security vendors behind. Um, they want to find someone who built something from the cloud for the cloud and works across multiple clouds. And all those aspects um, are true for Netscope. All those aspects are what um, helped uh, appealed to me, and it just felt like it was the right time for me to make the move. You, you know, you bring that up about uh, rethinking security architecture, and I could not agree more. I think we're in this transitional phase as as we see a lot of uh, uh, legacy approaches being just fundamentally too long in the tooth. You know, they no longer address some of the the, the core risks that organizations confront, and I think organizations like Netscope that are really bringing some heavy thinking, uh, some thought leadership in terms of how to address these risks. Um, it, it's very clear <laughs> the success in Netflix is kind of self-evident in terms of, of this approach. I, I, I think it's, uh, we'll look back at this kind of similar to how your first firewall, uh, I remember a 4U Cisco picks with five and a quarter drives. So it gives you an yep. idea of the age there. Um, <laughs> but I think we'll, we'll look back at this period of time, Steve and Paul, 
And, and think about it. this is when security architectures fundamentally changed. You know, you've got the confluence of variables, zero trust and, and all the derivative things related to that. Some of the improvements in terms of the capability to look at different forms of risk in more real time, kind of that adaptive response that you were describing earlier, Steve. I think this is absolutely necessary and Netscope is clearly out in front of us. Let's think for a moment about how controls have evolved and where the controls express themselves. Without really thinking consciously about it, when security controls began evolving, they appeared at the network. So that's where you saw a lot of primary controls. And then some secondary controls were maybe in the servers or the virtual machines, right? But so put, put that in your brain for a moment. Now, Think about how the move from on-premises to cloud has been essentially a series of abstractions. When everything was on-premises, you managed everything and you did most of your controls at the lowest layers, you know, physical access controls, network access controls, maybe a little bit with operating systems. Then when you leap into IaaS, whoa, uh, the lower layers, you know, you don't, you're not responsible for those anymore. You might have some virtual networking stuff, but you're controls really begin at the virtual machine level. Uh, so you're going to think less about uh, secure network of systems. You're going to think about more, think more about a network of secure systems. So you just slide the word security somewhere else in that sentence, right? Mm-hmm. But that's maybe the old way of thinking about cloud because VMs, you know, they're expensive and you don't want to run them a long time. So let's get away from that and abstract once more to platform as a service where now you're paying for these objects that can sometimes instantiate a little bit of compute just when they count some calculation needs to be done, but you don't even have an operating system anymore, right? So, so now the VM layer where you would insert some controls is, is gone. Um, you, you still have to write a secure application. Okay, so maybe the most important thing to do is think about how you write secure apps. But then you got to start thinking about, whoa, you know, data security and identity and access management. Because once you go to the next abstraction, software as a service, you don't own the app anymore. All you own is the data and whatever forms of access control and identity and access management you can put around that data. So... If you go back to the on-premises model, think of these as like layers, slices of a cake, right? And as we march across from on-premises to IaaS to PaaS to SaaS, all these bottom layers keep getting ripped out from underneath of you. And what we're left with is how do we secure the data and how do we build a really robust identity and access management strategy? These are the things that orgs um, have had the least amount of time to think about because the lower levels have always you know, been where we've put our security controls. Um, and if there's one piece of advice I would leave with folks uh, here today is take a good, close look at your IAM strategy. Because this is the foundation of any form of modern control strategy that you're going to devise, whether you're still on-premises or you're fully in the cloud. But then also think about how you're going to protect data. And again, I recognize that infrastructure-oriented folks are going to go, when I say data security, but there, I don't know any other way to say the infrastructure is basically evaporating. And the data is what we own and is what we control. And, and 
you know, I, I want to look for as many really interesting ways as I can find to protect the data and build that protection with a solid basis of identity everywhere. And if an infrastructure person wants to figure out where to insert themselves into this new world, I would say the identity layer is where you would, where you would belong. There's a lot of infrastructure or there's a lot of infrastructure that goes along with identity. And, and maybe that's a path for, for those folks. Beautifully stated. Yeah. Could, could not agree more. No, it's cool. It's, uh, it, 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 it's really, uh, it really has been quite a progression from, for the last, you know, whatever, 10, 15 years. And, and I think, yeah, we it really focusing on what you own, what you can control. I mean, it's, it's coming down to just, a, uh, like you said, it's, you know, IAM and the data, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, one of, one of my favorite, uh, things that you said, uh, last time we spoke was, was from data centers to many centers of data. I, I love, I love that. I love just the little play on words that you do. Yeah. Like we, you do with network and security and stuff is, is cool. So <laughs> great. Thank you for reminding me of that. I, I, I try to look for um, these little, oh, there's a term for it, but it's escaping me now. These little witticisms or bon vivants, right? That, that can lodge themselves into people's brains. Uh, I don't want to say an earworm because it's not really music, but you know, it's got that kind of effect, right? Moving from a secure network of systems to a network of secure systems, moving from a data center to many centers of data, um, another one, and it kind of gets back to what we were mentioning a minute or so ago, is that you, you're going to be moving away from network-based access control to identity and role-based access control. Um, those are the three that I would u- uh, use in some fashion in almost every client inquiry. And, and the, the feedback I got back from folks was, yeah, that helps me kind of reorient my thinking. So I'm glad you brought that up um, because I think, that, uh, you know, I think those three uh, can really help solidify a lot of um, where we all need to go as a community of security professionals in the future. Yeah. Well, it goes back to that. Oh, I'm sorry, Paul, but it no, does, really does go back to this point is that our traditional security architectures are woefully uh, ill-prepared. They cannot address the type of risk that we're dealing with now. And, and, and Steve, as you noted, with the abstraction of all the underlying layers, there, you know, the tools that we use to be able to support those higher levels, kind of privacy, data, governance, roles, access, least privilege, separations of duties, all the kind of good euphemisms you can throw in those higher levels. Uh, those tools have to be prepared to do that. And many of them, frankly, are not there, which is, I think, the reason why we're seeing uh, organizations like NEPSCO really kind of grow in terms of its importance of protecting what the enterprise actually values namely the business logic and the data within a multitude of different applications deployed across any number of different locales and, and, and cloud providers. So, how Oh, yeah. And SaaS represents an enormous amount of risk that I'm not sure people have fully appreciated yet because a lot of SaaS apps, they just do their thing, right? A business unit, you know, department, or maybe the entire org picks a SaaS app and they start using it. And because they don't have to manage the infrastructure anymore, it just kind of trundles along and nobody really has any problem with it <laughs> uh, um, unless, unless and until an org fires up some tool where they can investigate and they find that 
the company is subscribing to 2,000 different SaaS apps and who knows what sensitive information is stored where. And the reason why it hasn't leaked is because, well, you know, most people don't have access to the SaaS app where it's a small amount or the SaaS app vendors themselves do a pretty good job of not letting their customers' data leak. Uh, I, I, I think it's crucial that we understand first that cloud is somebody else's computer. Cloud is your data on somebody else's machine. And that's just going to blow your mind, you know, <laughs> in, in all kinds of ways. Um, but with SaaS, it's your data in somebody else's app on somebody else's computer. <laughs> and, and, and so I think that orgs really need to come to grips with the fact they've got to get SaaS under control. And under control doesn't mean that the security department becomes a department of no. It means you become the, 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 become the department of guardrails. You help people make the best decisions for which SaaS apps should be used for business function X, for business function Y. And if there's a conflict, then security can be a mediator and it can help the BUs come to some conclusion um, jointly. Okay, maybe you know this business unit doesn't get all the features it wants. This one doesn't get all the features it wants. But by choosing this one app, and both get ninety-five percent of the functionality they need, we know that it, we can govern it, and we can demonstrate to our customers and our suppliers that we're governing it. So, kind of come back to something we mentioned a little bit earlier. Yeah. Well, Steve, uh, I could talk to you all day. Uh, we'd, I'd love to have you back and 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 dive into some more topics. Uh, you, you're fascinating to listen to, and and uh, thank you. I'd really I'd appreciate love to it. have a round two. Yeah. Cool. We will definitely do that. And Matt, thank you so much again for always uh, joining—not always joining me, but joining me whenever I ask. Which is a uh, uh, really appreciate that too. My pleasure. And, and Steve, it's been an absolute uh, great opportunity to reconnect. Thanks a lot. Have a great day. You take care. Right. Oh, thank Thanks you. a lot. It was a lot of fun. See you later. See you Thanks, soon. Steve. Bye-bye. Bye.